You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining this podcast on Asia's response to coronavirus. Globally, we have seen more than 2 million cases, confirmed cases so far, more than 120,000 deaths. This is a humanitarian challenge like the world has never seen before. Here in Asia, we have seen more than 150,000 known cases. That number is probably under uh, uh, counted. We have seen more than 5,000, we have seen about 5,000 deaths. Um, different countries are in different stages as far as we can tell. China was early out uh, with large numbers. Now we've seen lower numbers in the last few weeks. Uh, we have seen Korea in the same situation. Recently, India on the other end of the spectrum has increased or has prolonged its lockdown for several weeks. Uh, in Singapore, we have seen increased measures in the last few weeks. Same in Japan, where the numbers are escalating. So different countries seem to be in different stages of, of evolution. We're going to talk about what this means for Asia. And I am joined today by Dr. Jonathan Wetzel, leader of McKinsey's Global Institute based in Shanghai, and Owen Daly, who leads our Asia uh, COVID-19 response team, uh, looking at what different countries are, are doing across the region. He is based out of Kuala Lumpur. Gentlemen, welcome and thank you for joining me. I'm going to start with you, uh, Jonathan, if that's okay. Uh, can you just elaborate a little bit? What have we learned about coronavirus so far? And why do we see countries at these different stages? Well, thank you, uh, Oliver. And uh, yeah, it's a very uh, serious and unprecedented moment uh, for Asia. In terms of what we've learned is that I think the capacity to respond quickly really differentiates countries and their uh, experience with the virus. And, you know, a, and this virus requires a response. Um, so, it's uh, it's clearly a global, uh, you know, not only a regional uh, challenge, uh, and every country in Asia is experiencing it. Uh, as you said, you know, cases are still on the rise, and so we shouldn't take anything for granted in terms of how successful or not a country is uh, in addressing this. Uh, but what we're learning is that a sort of dual focus around both health and livelihoods is necessary in order to sustain through the crisis and uh, prepare for restart and, and recovery. So that's the, I think the biggest takeaway is that we have to look at this as an integrated challenge. It's a health challenge, but also an economic one and that we shouldn't be trying to trade things off, that we have to do both at the same time. We have to do them right now. Yeah, exactly. Now we're gonna come back to the livelihoods and the economy in a, in, a, in, a, in a minute. What are some of the interventions that you have seen from governments that seem to work? 
Well, I mean, I think that the first thing is that I mean, government, first of all, um, has to get, if you will, coordinated. <laughs> That's the most important thing for government, that you know, the capacity to know uh, the, what the right hand and the left hand are doing, both in the health and the livelihood space, is critical. Uh, that otherwise, without the coordination, and that's what we've been, you know, we've seen the, the governments that have responded quickly be good at. Um, it's very hard to pull in the resources that are needed, be they public health or financial or uh, or labor market or anything or assets. Um, so this coordination capacity is a really a, a game changer for um, a lot of governments. And that's that's one one big takeaway from uh, what they're doing differently. Uh, there are there are implications as well, of course, for private sector, uh, in as much as they are essentially being enlisted in this effort. And so it's a collaborative response. Uh, and in many cases, it's actually led by the private sector itself, and and the government is in in effect responding to the private sector's initiatives. Yeah. And can you tell us also a little bit, um, I think we've seen from Korea, for example, the importance of, of early testing. We've seen Singapore being very good at contract uh, tracing, sorry, contact tracing. Uh, so do you see some of these measures being more important than others? Well, I mean, I, again, we're, we're sort of, uh, at this point, you know, observing what's happening. I don't know it's really our role. or I, I don't feel personally qualified to say what's the, the best response on the health side that's, that's possible and, and what people are, what's good or bad about specific countries. What I, what I do think is, is pretty clear is that the capacity to stand up uh, healthcare, the healthcare system uh, whether it's hospitals or nurses or, or supplies. I mean, that's obviously a critical uh, lever. And and, uh, and then, yeah, to uh, better information makes for better uh, decisions. And so the uh, capacity to understand where who's got the virus or who thinks they might have or where they've been and where they're going, I mean, all of those things really, of course, do make a huge difference to the types of interventions that uh, are that you might be considering. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Let me, uh, Owen, let, let's get you into this conversation too. Now, we've heard about some very serious consequences for the economy. Can you just give a little bit of a view of what are some of the scenarios that you are looking at? Great question, Oliver. So we're looking at a wide range of scenarios is the first thing to say. We don't have a, a central case or a base case or anything like that. And when we look at these scenarios, there are two things that uh, we look at in particular. One is whether or not coronavirus will recur. So how, how effective the measures will be um, that you were just talking about with Jonathan at containing the spread of the virus. And specifically, after this initial lockdown that many countries are experiencing, will we see the virus recur or will it fade away? That's one. The second is the effectiveness of government's response. And we've seen governments respond um, in, in some parts of the world at an unprecedented scale in terms of their stimulus packages. But the question is how effective they will be. And that's down to partly um, how well designed they are. But it's also down to uh, the institutional capacity to actually deliver. So some of the numbers that have been announced are very big numbers, but can that cash actually reach the vulnerable people, the businesses that need it to keep them going? There's uncertainty about the spread of the virus. There's uncertainty about the effectiveness of the economic interventions. But within that, there, there, are, there are many scenarios. As I said, two that we've looked at in particular are one in which, which would be on the optimistic side we would see the virus not recurring um, after the initial lockdown period of, of a couple of months or so. Um, and then we see the economy rebound towards the end of this year so that we would be at 
uh, effectively pre-COVID um, uh, economic activity levels by the end of this year or early next. But that is still, in that optimistic scenario, we're still facing, and as many people are already experiencing, we will still be facing a very deep recession in Q2 of this year. And, and the world overall in that scenario would still be looking at sort of minus 1.5% growth for the year, which is significantly uh, negative territory. But that is on the optimistic side. If we assume that the virus, look at a scenario where the virus recurs, where the virus recurs, um, then actually the big change is, firstly, that we'd have a deeper recession, um, but even more importantly, the time to get back becomes significantly longer. So instead of the end of this year, early next, you'd be looking at two to three years back. And by the way, in both those scenarios, we assume that the, the effectiveness of the economic interventions is basically the same. So the key difference is whether or not the virus recurs and therefore requires further lockdowns and other constraints on, on society and economic activity. But I should stress that we don't know, and there could be other scenarios beyond these two. Yeah. And, and I also guess, what, what are you seeing some of the governments doing? And I guess that, you know, their ability and how much money they can actually put is, is in some cases limited as well by the country's starting point. You know, if you look in Asia, our own region, right? I mean, Australia has announced, I think, 15% of GDP, as, as, as a, you know, which is a, you know, roughly in sort of the, the, the territory that we've seen some of the some of Western Europe and the US be in. But then you've got emerging economies where it's a very, very different story. We've got low single digits or even less than 1% of GDP. And this really matters, Oliver, because emerging economies come into this with many, many people, uh, hundreds of millions in some cases, very vulnerable people who effectively, um, they, they survive on what they earn each day. They have no resources to fall back. So they're much more vulnerable to something like this and to, and to offer them. But the government's capacity to respond from a fiscal perspective and also their institutional capacity to get those, that relief out is also at, um, often at a, at, a, at a lower level. And therefore, this is particularly acute for emerging markets. Yeah, and, and, and especially in Asia, world to a it, it is home to a significant part of the world's population, but also 35% of the world's poor are in, in Asia. And, and this crisis is going to disproportionately affect them. Um, and their livelihoods uh, and their lives. Uh, so I think this is something that, you know, it must be quite tough to be government leaders these days to know exactly what to do when the order sequence and how hard to pull the different levers. Um, let me shift uh, focus a little bit and talk about the, um, the companies and the business businesses around. Now, you talk to many CEOs, both of you, what, what is on top of their minds these days? Let, let me, why don't we start with, uh, with you, Owen? Well, the very first thing that's on, on top of all their minds is looking after their people. Um, and they are putting in place a variety of measures to look after their people. That has been top of every CEO's mind that we've spoken to, number one. The second then is to say, you know, can we get our business through this, our company through this? Um, and so they're, they're doing things like, for example, they're doing financial stress tests, they're modeling all sorts of different uh, uh, hits on demand, uh, they might get through that, um, what the, the health of their balance sheet on, on different scenarios and so on. Um, and they're also, uh, but I think it's very important to say that, you know, they don't typically, and our advice to them as well, is that it's hard to have a base case here. It's hard to sort of say, well, there's too much uncertainty now to know for sure. So you've got to prepare for a pretty pessimistic scenario, hope for a better one. But if that's really got to be the, the posture. And then you've got to be in a position, you've got to have the capacity to be able to respond very quickly 
to signals that come. So if the economy begins to recover more quickly, for example, than we expect, to be able to rapidly respond to that. Do you have your supply chains in place? Have you got the heavy design, the protocols to so get people back to work safely and so on? The last thing I would say is that in addition to trying to get through this, they're also looking to the future and thinking about how this might change their, their, their industries, their business models, um, and what the new world might look like and whether in the longer term, um, what opportunities there might be for them uh, beyond this crisis. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. So this this is a pretty this is a pretty stressful situation for senior leaders. Right? You know, you have the immediate and the concern about the health and safety of your people, keeping them employed, uh, making sure that they are are okay yet trying to keep the, the machines running, so to speak, and then also having an eye on the long term. Um, Jonathan, do you see the same? Well, I think companies in Asia are in different places. And um, I think, first of all, volatility is nothing particularly new to Asian CEOs. There was SARS, there was MERS, there was the financial crisis, there was, uh, I mean, there's been a, there's been a bunch of disruption. Uh, and in many cases, we're talking about developing markets where disruption is almost the norm. Uh, so in some ways, this is a, you know, a, you know I, I wouldn't say familiar ground, but it's, it, it's not at least unfamiliar in the sense the need to sort of, okay, now we're going to manage this one month at a time. And so, and what's, uh, you know, and what's the next crisis that's going to come down the line. So I see a lot of people shifting into that mode where they're being very tactical uh, they're thinking about what they could do to, as you say, get through the next 30 to 60 days. But they're also thinking about how and if the world has changed. You know, what actually does uh, this create in terms of an opportunity? Uh, and how should they think about redeploying resources? Uh, one of the, as, as Owen says, I think nobody likes to be in the business of laying people off. Uh, and so it's always better if one could say, well, if the business is going over here, I better follow it. Uh, and I think that's kind of one of the bigger sort of things I, I see everyone, particularly, of course, the uh, countries that have been companies that have been the countries that have been dealing with for a little bit longer, I would say. Not that they're out of it, but in many ways, they're very uncertain about whether it'll come back or what they should do. But they've just been in it for longer. And as a result, they sort of see that, well, things may be changing, uh, whether it's the consumer uh, or it's the role of the state uh, or it's the technology. Um, but clearly, they're, they're, we're, we're seeing an acceleration in a lot of cases of trends that uh, were already ongoing, but they're being pushed. And companies are looking at those trends and saying, okay, so what does that mean for me? Uh, how do I change my model? Yeah. And of course, you know, the, the CEOs and, and, and the leaders and the companies are, are often dealing with this from their own homes because they are in different degrees of lockdown. Uh, travel restrictions and what have you. So it's a very different also personal situation for many, right? You know, you have your teenage kids uh, sitting in the room next door trying to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to study uh, and you have, you know, it's, and it's completely different for the family. So this comes at also a very awkward or a very different moment for how, you know, your whole life is, uh, is, uh, is working these days. Can we go back a little bit to something you said earlier, Jonathan? 
which was, I think you, you, you said that different sectors are, are hit in different ways. So how does that affect, you know, do you see differences between different CEOs and then uh, in different sectors and companies? Um, I don't know who wants to go first. Sure, Albert. So um, we do for sure. And I think, uh, I think uh, as an example, um, if we, if we look at uh, oil and gas, uh, oil and gas has been hit, big, big demand shock. But then there's also been, uh, uh, up until a few days ago, there's obviously there was a, there was on the supply side as well. This has been hard hit. If we look beyond that, we obviously see a lot of the consumer-facing non-food retail industries have been hit very hard. F&B has been hit very hard. Tourism, obviously, has been hit extremely hard. Um, so it, it does absolutely, uh, the, 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 the depth, if you like, of, uh, um, of, the, of the economic crisis varies significantly, as young as by geography, but also, also by sector. Yeah, yeah, I can uh, build on that a little bit. I think that, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because clearly what we've had here is a rolling set of shocks. I mean, and so we started off with a supply shock, actually, from China, um, which uh, you know, affected a lot of the non-China economies. Uh, and then we had a demand shock. Uh, as the uh, as, as the, the pandemic uh, grew and the lockdowns uh, emerged, and so we we have that. And that clearly, of course, hits the consumer uh, much uh, much more. Uh, and now we're potentially in some areas having a getting a financial shock, uh, where it ripples through into the valuation of uh, assets that are financed by the consumer or otherwise at risk. Uh, because of the supply and the demand shocks. And so at some level, everybody is going to get this. Um, but uh, I think it is, it is, it's rolling through. So clearly, there's been a big impact on the banking sector um, as, we, uh, as we look at that, which is an indicator of just how broad-based uh, the uh, decline in growth expectations is across the economy, as well as potentially the implications that that has um, for finance and the, the value of financing. Uh, and, you know, and then we'll see. I think that uh, within sectors is also equally uh, as much variation. And so uh, there are clearly differences between companies. In fact, you know, probably that the range between top decile and bottom decile performance uh, between uh, within a given sector is greater than the range of differentiation from the means across sector. If that if that follows, it's just that it's a uh, it's it, there's a lot of room with even in any given sector to if you will outperform certainly than 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 your com than your com peer mark peer companies, but also just outperform the the whole industry as uh, across sectors as well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I'm lo I'm looking at a chart and basically we see. Sectors like commercial airspace, air travel, oil and gas, like you mentioned, Owen, they are down 30 to 40 percent. Banks uh, in the same zone, down 25 percent, give or take change. They're at one end of the spectrum as sectors. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have pharmaceuticals, we have tech, we have consumer companies that are, you know, ba basically flat, uh, maybe a few percentage points down. But you're absolutely right. You know, the the best performing oil and gas company uh, is significantly better than, uh, than the worst performing pharmaceutical company. So you're absolutely right uh, to say that, Jonathan. Listen, I, I want to shift the uh, focus of our conversation here and, and uh, talk about the new normal. Uh, obviously, the world has changed a lot and the world will probably not go back to the way it used to be. 
So what will the new normal be like? Now, I know it's difficult to predict, but you know, what are some of the contours that we can see emerging? Uh, Jonathan, you want to go uh, first on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, as I said, I think it's a little bit of uh, an a tr accelerator of trends that might have already been in play, and now we're just getting there a little bit faster. Um, so digital being the most obvious one. So, you know, life went very digital uh, for most consumers, and that uh, that's going to stick for a bunch of categories. Maybe not all of them, but uh, I think many of those deliveries will still be done online and, and fulfilled online. Some won't because it's just not economic to do so outside of a public health emergency. So maybe fresh food won't, uh, you know, won't, won't be delivered, but we'll see. Um, I think there are a couple other things that, that come to mind. I mean, we also, as we went digital in our consumption, we of course went digital in our, in our work. And uh, I think we've all learned how to use Zoom and every, and Teams and everything else. And so I, all of these uh, technologies are now highlighting in many ways that the, the different the, the different options we have. So people got a lot more choice. So this is tactically has some implications for things like commercial real estate. And so, and, and how that would be used going forward. Uh, it's actually interesting that it may be better for the sharing economy because it's going to be more flexible and you can manage it better um, than simply having lots of buildings with uh, single usage uh, desks or single companies. It's, uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation there, but clearly the work has changed. Uh, that's that's going to stick. Uh, and the last one I'll, I'll I'll I mean I'll put on the table I think is this idea of uh, a uh, social revised version of the social contract uh, in the sense that I mean if it wasn't already clear or was implicit it became almost very explicit that the 21st century company has to respond to a 21st century pandemic and uh, that the uh, it's almost in inherent in the license to operate or the mandate that when there is a whole of society challenge that companies are expected to be part of the solution. This, I think, will have a long lasting effect as people realize that this is not, first of all, going to go away, that that expectation has now been set and raised. And as a result, companies are going to more formally commit to their whole of society mandate for uh, or for the, to, to repair and to maintain the, the social contract. Thank you. I think, uh, I think Jonathan, I agree with everything Jonathan said. I think one other thing I'd add, I think that's going to be important in this is the role of government going forward. Um, it, we, in the short term, we've seen, we're seeing it already in terms of the relief and stimulus packages that are coming. But beyond that, as particular sectors and companies and sectors get into distress, we, may, we can expect to see government get more involved in, in the economy. And that may be from a regulatory perspective, may even be in it from an ownership perspective. And that's something that um, we'd hope as part of the new normal would be um, uh, would evolve. Um, so the governments are able to step back in time and it's maybe an opportunity to, to, to strengthen regulation and also make regulation more independent from government um, in, in, in certain parts of Asia. That could be an opportunity that, that comes out of this once we're through the worst. I think the other point is important is around infrastructure development. And um, what Jonathan was describing around digital, this is also an opportunity. We've seen this already in some countries um, to accelerate the development of 5G infrastructure, as an example. Um, I think another thing as part of this new normal, as part of the acceleration Jonathan mentioned, is thinking about um, AI, the fourth industrial revolution, whatever you want to call it, and how you particularly get small and medium companies to be able to participate in that. They've been some of the hardest hit by, by this crisis and will be. But as part of the recovery plan, are there ways in which through incentives, through capability building, those companies will also be able to participate and, and, uh, 
um, and accelerate their own development, which would benefit all of the, all of the economy, the economy and society. What about consumers? Are we going to see any big changes in their preferences and how consumers go about consuming? Jonathan, what have we seen in China so far? Yeah, I think that the, uh, the consumers, first of all, right now in China is, we say, cautiously optimistic. Um, you know, we have, we're seeing a bounce back on the discretionary spend side. Uh, we've also, uh, to the extent that we see precautionary savings, it's mostly in the tier three, tier four. Um, so there's some of that. I mean, I think people are going to put a little bit more away for a rainy day uh, because of this, but that uh, the overall sort of the animal spirits are, are relatively good. Uh, and uh, in terms of changes, well, I mean, I think it's the digital, the, the big trend, and that's that's actually not just the consumer, that's the, that's the retailer, that's the whole value chain sort of moving to digital because it actually works. It's, it's better. It's a, more customization, lower cost, and and uh, more effective, more greater, better experiences and safer experiences in the stores. Uh, so yeah, I think that's definitely going to uh, going going to feature. I think health and safety was already again was another trend that the consumer was absolutely more concerned about, you know, increasingly concerned about what's in their food <laughs> as opposed to whether they have it. Uh, and uh, so that you know is now ratcheted up. So the one big category that gained a lot was household cleaning supplies. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll see you know a heightened attention to you know the quality and the premium for that quality can be paid. So I think that's actually kind of good news for you know, product suppliers who are thinking about how to meet that new Asian consumer, which is the growth engine of the world, of course. So as we've been saying, that the Asian consumer is the biggest thing that's going to hit this the, the global economy uh, since ever. Uh, so that that's good news. Uh, and yeah, I, I otherwise I. I mean, I, I think there isn't a particular play around sort of local versus foreign. I think that we haven't seen much shift there, but we do see uh, the value of, again, commitment of place and uh, people, companies that build their brands in times of hardship. They, you know, they are, they, they, they get a premium and they get to sustain share and the uh, big share gains have happened uh, over the course of this uh and pandemic as companies have stepped in where others have stepped out or have been one companies that had to shut or were unable to, you know, sustain the level of safety that was expected. Well, they, they lost a lot of share, uh, whether it's in quick serve retail or, uh, you know, in, in manufacturing. Thank you. Listen, so I'm not going to attempt to, to summarize what, what you were describing as the new normal. I heard a few things around, the way we work and the way we educate, we've talked about that. That is going to change. We've talked about the social contract, the expectations of companies, governments, of uh, citizens. Uh, we've talked about the way shifts in the way companies operate using technology, you know, thinking through the risks in the supply chain, shifting, um, shifting those. We talked about shifts in consumer preferences and what they, what they value uh, over time. So these are all things to, to be looking out for as the new normal gets uh, defined and redefined uh, over the next uh, coming months and years. Let me end by just asking you each one, one question. What are the things to look out for in the next few weeks or months? No, and you go first. Uh, thank you, John. Look, I think, the, the, look, uh, let's be optimistic here. I think number one will be, you know, the, the, the return uh, of, you know, the, the, the lifting of the constraints that are there, not everywhere, but in many parts of, uh, of Asia today, the lockdowns um, or versions of. 
as we see that th th there's a couple of things that will drive that one is obviously what's happening in terms of the, the spread and the rate of spread of the virus and the other being the, the readiness of health systems um, and the capacity of health systems but also there's a there's a very you know difficult for the governments here about you know what are because there, there are obviously significant negative consequences from lockdowns as well um, but I would hope to see if the in a position where we can begin to reopen uh, and, and see economies return. There are lessons to be learned from some of the earlier movers around this about how to sequence this and what the right protocols are to put in place. I think what's interesting is that we are seeing at the industry level and company level, companies working extremely hard to define the protocols which will enable their people to come back to work safely um, and also their, and their customers to engage with them safely as well. We're seeing that happening at a very, in, in real detail at a micro level, company by company. And getting that right will obviously be key to um, to the economy making a successful return. Jonathan. Yeah, on my side, I mean, I think that the forward-looking indicators are there, the PMI, the sort of for services and for manufacturing, and we can kind of look at, you know, the daily activity levels, whether it's uh, energy or electricity consumption or so the big one that's questionable is kind of the mobility numbers. And so, I mean, which one of the cool things, we now have data that we can actually really see, you know, how many road cars are on the road at any given point in time or people using any type of transit. So that's a really good daily number to, to understand. And I think there may be some really long-term changes there, sort of as people have moved away from mass transit, clearly. And uh, how what will it look like when it, when it comes back? Mobility in cities is going to be a, a really interesting space. Uh, but I mean, the other part of it, I think, is is the stimulus and sort of the recovery efforts and sort of taking a look at, you know, what are people actually putting in gear to beyond the immediate relief? Because clearly the immediate relief is needed. And then we have to sort of protect the consumer and protect the, the small business, which is almost the same thing. Um, but, uh, you know, where does it, where, where does we go from here? And so what are people doing? Is this a restart of the 2008, 2009 where you know, essentially what uh, massive amounts of liquidity sort of flooded the system for the next seven years led to, you know, a lot of deleveraging thereafter. Um, are we doing it differently this time? So far, it's interesting to see, at least in the China case, that uh, the stimulus that's being deployed is largely around a more moderate set of uh, infrastructure investments as opposed to a huge inflation of the money supply. I mean, partially perhaps because that would be very risky given the amount of debt that, that's accumulated in the Chinese system. Uh, but also maybe it's just a different approach and sort of saying, you know, well, we actually want to you know, support the development of a competitive economy, not just a, a, a one that is uh, floating on a on a sea of cash. Uh, so that uh, that's uh, that's interesting. And every country, of course, has to has to make that call in the system as a whole. So looking at where those stimulus money uh, is is being uh, generated and how it's being deployed, I think that will also be something to take a take a look on to get a clue for. You know how this competitive environment might might shape up, might shape up going forward. Excellent. Listen, final thing to do is just thank Owen, thank Jonathan for uh, for participating. Uh, you've been great uh, uh, colleagues and, and and great interview objects in this uh, podcast. Thank you so much for uh, for this. And to everyone else, I hope you found this interesting. Please stay safe. Take care. Thank Enjoy. you. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, 
our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash Future of Asia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook. <music>